2: You for tuning in. Welcome to the October 25th, 2021 Halloween edition ooh, of IMRU Radio Magazine. We've been out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices from the LGBTQIA 2S plus communities. Let those letters grow, honey. I am Carell in the city of Las Vegas. You, of course, can hear me wherever you get your podcast. We are on an outing, and on this outing, we are going to visit a hot crypt keeper and no that leaves out mitch mcconnell have a nightmare on gay street we are going to get the 411 on horror from writer producer clive barker and i am one of the night breed oh yes i am and converse with the world's greatest skeptic not me uh now halloween is more than a night to dress up as a slutty nurse or a buff gandhi or kim kardashian at the met it is a time of ghost and magic but is any of that real Our next guest has spent a lifetime debunking such things. We give you Steve Pride in conversation with his friend, The Amazing Randy. Launching his career in
3: 1945, James The Amazing Randy entertained millions of people around the world with his remarkable feats of magic, escape, and deception. But when others started to label their tricks as real magic... Randy began to challenge their claims, becoming in the process the world's best-known skeptic. James, have you always been amazing?
4: Oh, no. I used to be astonishing, but it doesn't fit on a marquee very well.
3: You dropped out of high school in 1945 to become a magician. Why?
4: I was one of those child prodigies. I was able to stay out of grade school. I just had to go in to write the examinations. This is in Canada, and many, many years ago, I'm six figure it out. And uh, in doing that sort of thing and not being in school and having the ability to wander about, I uh, would occasionally attend a theater, a matinee in most cases, and I got to go to the casino theater and see Harry Blackstone Sr., who was the reigning magician of the day, touring uh, the United States and Canada regularly every year. And uh, (laughs) I can tell you, when he did The Levitation of Princess Azra, where he made the lady float up into the air. Well, that was magical to me, and I began to doubt whether I would be an organic chemist or an archaeologist as I had planned at that time. I was 12 years of age, and I sort of took a turn, maybe for the worse. I guess archaeology and chemistry lost me, but show business sure got me.
3: But in the 1970s, you became more famous as a bunker of false psychic claims.
4: I'm not a debunker. I don't accept that terminology because that would mean that I went into an investigation saying, this is not true, and I'm going to prove to you it's not true. So when I go into these things, though with a certain amount of difficulty, I have to say, I just don't know. Let's find out, shall we? In most cases, I do know, but I saw the damage that it was doing, people's belief in the paranormal powers and and psychic forces and such. And I conferred with a great number of them who would even come to me voluntarily and ask me about something I did in the program. And they'd say, well, I enjoyed what you did, so-and-so, and 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 such-and-such. But when you told the lady her telephone number, that was real ESP, right? And I'd always say, no, 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 there's a way of doing that. Well, what is it? No, I'm sorry, I can't reveal the secrets of the conjurers, after all. Because uh, this is a secret brotherhood, sisterhood now. We've got a lot of female magicians in the trade, I'm happy to say. But that's the way I had to to do it. It was very awkward when they started to believe that I actually
3: had the powers. Well, people that believe these people want to believe them.
4: Let's change that statement, though. Instead of just want to believe them, they need to believe them. That's the important verb here, and I always differ with people who say the other one. They actually need to believe it because they want something supernatural in their lives. They want some magic in their lives. You don't need magic, folks. You need the facts. And science has the facts. That's where you'll find the facts of how the world really works.
3: You're probably most famous for exposing New Age psychic and spoonbender Uri Geller.
4: I have been his nemesis for years. I gave that up years ago, though, because I showed that he was a total fake that he just couldn't do what he said he was doing. And I have over 150 examples of where he has said on television, I don't know how to do tricks. I don't know any of those things that the magicians know. What I do is real. And he says it exactly that way on our film as well. And that gets a laugh from the house because they now realize that he's a fellow who bends spoons. Now, wait a minute. What's your profession, sir? I bend spoons. Why? Because it makes me a lot of money. That's a good reason. Bends spoons, this is an art, this is a talent that humanity needs. Any fool can bend a spoon. It's not that difficult. Well, some spoons are exceptional, but most spoons you can bend.
3: You wouldn't want them to come to dinner, obviously.
4: No, no. I'd be very careful. Don't use the best silverware.
3: Tell me about your foundation.
4: The James Randi Educational Foundation was set up many years ago in order to have an actual organization that could, uh, first of all, we offer a million-dollar prize to any of the psychics who can come forth and actually prove they are psychic. You'd think there'd be a lineup outside the studio on the street right now, wouldn't you think so? I didn't notice any lineup, so we have offered that prize for all these years, and so far, No takers. Now, some people have tried, and I believe that these are the people who really believe they have psychic powers. But when we put them through the test, they fail miserably, and then they're always surprised. That is, the real truthsayers who really believe they have the powers. The others don't come anywhere near us, of course.
3: Someone I haven't talked to yet is Amazing Randy's amazing partner of nearly 30 years, Davey Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez. How did you two
5: meet? We met at the Fort Lauderdale Public Library. I was uh, painting ceramics at that point that had space imagery, and Randy came over and he started asking me if I was interested in space imagery. And I said yes, and we ended up spending the whole afternoon together.
4: And I had a telescope at home, a Questar telescope, and I invited him over to the house to actually see the planet Saturn.
5: And Davey, you've stuck around for nearly 30 years. Well, Amaze is the most incredible human being i ever known. And we have a lot of things in common. And I have found through him a, an incredible sense of compassion. I have met incredibly interesting people. And he's a, a really interesting person. So um, through the years, the love has grown more and more.
3: Randy, you came out as gay in 2010 at age 81. What prompted that?
4: I didn't have any need to do so before that. Remember, when I was a teenager in Canada... That would never have been done. It absolutely wouldn't have happened or you would probably be stoned by the neighbors. But the point is, I moved to the United States and found it much more uh, acceptable of that lifestyle. And uh, I eventually got around to the point where, in my 80s, I said, it's about time. And I came out with it with no problem whatsoever.
5: However, I remember one very pivotal moment. We were watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn, And after the movie, Randy was very pensive. Then the following day, he handed me out a piece of paper that he had written the night before. He said he couldn't sleep. And when I read it, it was basically his coming out letter. And I got very nervous. I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, well, after seeing the movie, I just thought very hard about the importance of coming out and that I must. And I think that... As a person who has based his life work about telling the truth, I think it was a necessary step at that moment for him to do, and he took it, and uh, he received a great uh, appreciation from a lot of people.
4: Well, the response was well, not terribly surprising to me, but the result was very gratifying. By postal mail and on the Internet, letters just poured in supporting me, saying, it's well, that you did it. And that was very brave. And no, it wasn't all that brave. It was just time to
3: do it. What's the best thing about being an out gay man at 86 years old? <laughs>
4: the best thing? Well, you had the satisfaction of knowing that uh, you didn't hesitate to tell the world when it was perfectly safe to do so. There's not much danger in that, but it's the agreement that I got. The people who wrote me and uh, said congratulations. Now, you couldn't tell from many of them whether they themselves were gay or not. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, from the public in general, I got great approval and acceptance. Acceptance is the word here, I think. That was most pleasant to me to know that uh, I could generally trust the public to come to their senses. And look what has happened, Uh, concerning the gay movement. Now, in just recent years, both Davy and I have been pretty astonished by uh, how out this thing is now and how reasonably acceptable it is to most of the public.
3: This has been a conversation with Davy Pina, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez, and James, the amazing Randy. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
6: If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts would
2: tell. Just like an old-time movie, about a ghost from a wishing well. Now, James Randy died a year ago at the ripe old age of 92, a life well lived. And you know what? We haven't heard from him since, but we're still holding out hope. Ha 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 I do a terrible Vincent Price. That's okay. It's Halloween. I'm trying. Uh, next, Steve Pride talks with a gay man who is less skeptical because he knows where all the bodies are buried,
7: child.
1: Hi, my name is Tyler Cassidy, and I am president of Hollywood Forever and Fernwood Cemeteries.
3: So are you technically a keeper?
1: You know, I started calling myself a cemeterian, but I don't think that's a real word, so Undertaker's good. Cemetery owner, but then I also have a preschool just to round things out in Mill Valley. What all do you do then? At each location here and in Mill Valley, we have cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories. Although the location in Marin County, Fernwood, is actually a natural burial. It's adjacent to Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is that gigantic reserve. And there we bury people naturally, sometimes in shrouds. No metal, no embalming, and they're buried in a natural setting. And then we use uh, restoration ecology to restore the grounds as part of the burial.
3: How does a nice boy from the Midwest end up owning a cemetery in Hollywood?
1: Well, we had sold all of our family funeral homes. And I had an idea because when I had gone back after college for what was supposed to be a visit, I ended up making uh, video photo montages of uh, the deceased and showing those at their funerals. That's what I could relate to in terms of a funeral home because it seemed like that was a good way to remember someone and more than an embalming art, it was actually a form of memorial where people, I saw them have the most catharsis and the most emotion. And then when the computer age came, I designed some software in New York where cemeteries and funeral homes could use our software to have archival systems at their cemeteries to pull up biographical information and photos. And so I was actually out here to present to the two biggest cemeteries, Forest Lawn right next door and Rose Hill. And they at the time were speaking of the dilapidated, derelict and twice padlocked Hollywood Memorial Park. And I stopped there on my way to the airport and it was El Nino. And the place was completely dilapidated and flooded and in great disrepair, but I found it just beautiful. It was romantic. It seemed to me the oldest place in this city that to me at the time seemed just all newness, and it was love at first sight.
3: But still, back then, no one was dying to get in there.
1: Nobody was dying to get in. In fact, you couldn't die to get in there unless you owned a property before they lost their license.
3: But talk about it today.
1: Today, it is more than a cemetery we are a very operational functioning cemetery Uh, we serve so many diverse aspects and so many diverse elements of our community but in different ways in a funereal and cemetery way we serve uh, the russian jewish community of hollywood we serve a lot of our latino population because that's our demographics in l.a We serve a lot of the Armenian population of Glendale, and those are the people that still believe in burial. We also do a lot of cremation business because that's the Anglo trend in California. And then we have, I think, an exceptional program of being an intrinsic part of the cultural fabric of LA, if I can say that. For instance, we just had our annual Dia de los Muertos, and I haven't gotten in the final count, but I think there were, over the course of a day, I'll say over 10,000 people who came yesterday and probably much more. That started as a Mexican tradition, but now I would say it's an Angelina tradition of art and remembrance and performance. And then we also have an ongoing cultural series of plays. We have our summer Chinespia series, which celebrates the great films, both modern and classic and black and white and even silent. We also have art exhibits. So as we experimented and opened ourselves. The city kind of saw what I saw when I first walked in. Once it was given a um, fresh look and a fresh name that it was culture, that there was something that was intrinsically cultural about this place.
3: Who are some of the stars residing in Hollywood Forever? Tell us where the bodies are buried.
1: Well, it depends upon your generation, I guess. I mean, it begins with Rudolf Valentino, the great film star, and we still have his annual memorial, which This year, I think 300 people turned out, which is pretty incredible. Jump forward, we've got uh, Johnny Ramone, and we have such varied characters as one of the Darrens from Bewitched, as well as his boss. We have Miss Estelle Getty, Mr. Blackwell from Mr. Blackwell's List, and then we have those who are famous among their family and friends. But so much of old Hollywood is there. Marion Davies, Jane Mansfield's cenotaph is there. Uh, The great epic filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, both Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Sr. are there in the great Fairbanks Memorial. And it's amazing how many people who were part of the business either doing scores or behind the camera or doing costumes like Adrian. So many people are there, and yet some of your audience probably wouldn't know them as the generations pass.
3: Do all these activities you do there get in the way of your main business? Death.
1: That's the amazing thing because, you know, traditionally a a cemetery is supposed to serve the people in a five or ten mile radius. The interesting thing is we're serving the living unlike any other cemetery by bringing younger people in as well as older people in who aren't there to die or to mourn, and yet they're there to have cultural experiences with the dead surrounding them. And I think that does change their behavior, and I think it does change their experience. When people come to see, like, um, Sunset Boulevard, and hear Norma say, I'm ready for my close-up, Cecil B. DeMille, and you know that he's just 100 yards away, I think there's a special feeling there. And I think just that we've been so willing because of desperation, because we, as you said, people were not dying to get in when I got there. We had to think outside of, I can't say that, we had to, we had to think outside of the cemetery industry to make this cemetery thrive.
3: There aren't a lot of gay cemeterians out there?
5: Or maybe there there are, are, more,
1: are more than you would think. There's someone in Orange County who actually had a calendar of shirtless funeral directors and sold that for some benefit. So when I was making the funeral convention circuit back in the early part of my career, there were a number of gays and they appreciated me being open.
3: Hollywood forever, forever seems like an awfully long time.
1: Yes, it is, yes. One last serious question. What
3: sort of preparations are you making for the coming zombie apocalypse?
1: Well, a lot of meditation and yoga. And that's just to keep me calm. And I felt like Day of the Dead was good. I went up in the middle, and I just had to meditate for fifteen minutes because there were so many people there. But uh, we have started to build vertically, and so we just built a five thousand crypt mausoleum, and then we have plans for another nine thousand crypt mausoleum. So the zombie accomplice, it's going to be very busy. I mean, we're going to have to bring in a lot of part-time help. It'll be like wrist yeah, bands get get wristbands. Yeah, wristbands for in and out And we did show um, Dawn of the Dead just kind of a, of a primer, you know, how to deal with a zombie. That's where they're all living in the mall with the zombies. So I think we're pretty ready. Yeah.
3: Are you ever creeped out roaming around your cemetery at night?
1: I um, have <laughs> never really gotten the creeps, and I maybe I'm just not sensitive, or I'd like to think that if there's anyone there who's working for the dead people, it's me. You know, there's people who are definitely there for the living people and the grieving people. There's specific people now for the people that are there for entertainment, for cultural affairs. But I feel like it's always going to be my job as head caretaker to speak up for the dead people and think of, well, We're not going to do that because they don't like that. Well, how do you know they don't like that? Well, I feel like they don't like that. And I like to think that they're pleased with my job so far. So maybe they're not creeping me. We'll be right back with the down and dirty on
2: Dreams Turned Into Nightmares. We all know a thing about that, don't we? Nightmare on Elm Street 2, that is. Cue the scream. Ah! (sighs) Don't go away.
7: The Great Gay Holiday, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. October is an important month in the LGBT calendar. For one, October is LGBT History Month, a month devoted to heroes, sheroes, and our past. October 11th is Coming Out Day, and then there's Halloween. Lesbian poet Judy Grine dubbed Halloween the Great Gay Holiday and made her case in her book, Another Mother Tongue. Halloween that was tied to gay culture began in the 1950s and 60s in the Tenderloin area of San Francisco, where most of the gay bars were located. Huge street events occurred in the 1980s there in the Castro, Key West, Florida, Christopher Street, New York, and Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. And as Richmond drag icon Joanna Powers put it, it used to be Halloween was the only day you could dress in drag and not get arrested. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Fred Wayne. Hello, this is the actor Michael
0: Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to IMRU.
1: Toss midnight And something even stuck in the dark Under the moonlight
0: You see a sight that almost stops your heart
1: You try to scream But terror takes the sound before you make it You start to freeze As horror looks you right between the eyes You're paralyzed Cause this is love.
2: For your tonight. Welcome back. Woo, boo-boo scary. I am Carell, and you're listening to the Halloween edition of I am R U Radio Magazine. Now, Broadway actor Mark Patton thought being cast in a big-budget sequel to a hit horror film was a dream come true, but instead... It was an infamous nightmare that derailed his career. What horror story are we talking about? Well, tune in,
1: child.
3: Mark Patton began his career in the Broadway production of Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, directed by Robert Altman, starring Kathy Bates, Karen Black, and Cher. He then moved to Los Angeles for the film version. But it was his next big role on the big screen, playing Jesse Walsh in the surprisingly a more erotic, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, that turned his own Hollywood dream into a Hollywood
6: nightmare. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body.
1: I've got the brain. Yes, Jesse.
0: You think we should call a doctor? No, no, I'm fine. It's just a bad dream. Okay. Hi, I'm Mark Patton, actor, producer, political activist. Actually, now, I'm the star of *A Nightmare on Elm Street 2: Freddy's Revenge*. At that particular time, 1985, 1986, it was terrifying to be a gay actor in Hollywood. I was instructed when I first moved here that I wasn't allowed to live in West Hollywood, anywhere in the 90069 zip code, that I would not ever set foot in a bar because the agencies kept people in the bars to look for other agencies' gay clients and then sabotage them. It's very cutthroat because at the time, AIDS was everywhere. And it was something that people didn't want to talk about. But you'd see a guy and... Six months later, you'd run into him on the street and he was an old man. As an actor, it was the love that dare not speak its name. It was a completely different world.
3: And in this closeted town, you were cast in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is notorious for its gay subtext.
0: I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Look, I don't care if you believe me or not. Hey, I believe you. You've had some scary dreams, okay? David Chaskin wrote it as gay, but when people ask him about it, he said, oh, no, Mark was just so gay that he gayed up the whole thing and he destroyed this movie. And he did that for 30 years until I busted him in a documentary called Never Sleep Again. And now I'm doing a documentary which is about why boys like me disappeared in Hollywood. Somebody would get famous, and you'd say, like, oh, my God, he's so good, like, Mitchell Anderson. He's so good. And then all of a sudden he's gone. We hid. We had to because it wasn't safe. And it was like nobody wanted you. When you start getting fag bashed on a national or an international level, I was a boy who ran from Kansas City to New York to be safe. I didn't come to have people throw rocks at me on television and say, oh, you know, he's such a fag or Oh, you know, like he screams like a girl or he ruined this movie. It was my own personal nightmare. Many, many times about the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, I would go like, God, why me? Why did I end up in this movie? They called the gayest movie of all time. Freddy only kills boys. I'm in bed with my best friend. I'm naked half the time. I have an S&M gym coach who tries to rape me and then gets killed. Why did I end up in this movie?
3: When you cast the male lead in the victim role, and then have him scream for 90 minutes, you're going to have some people going, well, that's not the manliest performance I've ever seen.
0: It just boggles my mind, and it's straight, guys. And I say, is that what you really think of women? That the worst thing that you could call me is a woman, and you're attracted to women? I screamed in Nightmare on Elm Street exactly the way a person who was going to be murdered would scream. I didn't scream like a boy. I screamed like a person who was about to be murdered. Because I was playing what was traditionally a woman's part, it terrified straight guys. And they couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with it. there was a woman hero, that a woman was going to save a boy because Kim, my screen partner, she never abandoned me. She was the hero. And what they really couldn't get their minds wrapped around, and I got this from a Yale dissertation, Is it's called Reconsidering Jesse, is everybody's like, oh, you know, Mark's so gay or Jesse's so gay and all these gay And... The professor at Yale, who teaches this in a queer theory class, said, no, the gay person in that movie is Freddie. Freddie's the one that's pursuing Jesse. Jesse's not pursuing Freddie. And if you notice in all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he's vicious with girls. Like his claws come up between Heather's legs in part one. He's a maniac towards women. But in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, he's seducing me. He never hurts me. He caresses my face. He almost kisses me at one point. And any boy who's interested in me, he kills him.
3: Hindsight is amazing, but did any of these things seem suspicious at the time?
0: I realized in the middle of filming, and I was like, I mean, literally my hair caught on fire. I was like, oh my god, I'm in my nightmare. And this portion of my life, I always said I would entitle it Scream, Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street because I realized right in the middle of shooting this thing that I was in my nightmare. I mean, this was bad, what was going to happen to me. And I knew when this movie came out, the people that recognized it immediately were 14-year-old boys. And they walked into the theater and they went, "Mm -mm, he's a fag. And it started like a whisper, and then it became a roar. And when they realized that they had a multi-million dollar franchise on their hand, they brought Wes Craven back in. And Wes Craven cut a deal with them that they would pretend that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 never happened and just jump from one till three. It just never happened. When people talk about that movie, they're talking about me. I am Jesse. I am that boy that they're talking about. And it destroyed my self-confidence. And People had thrown rocks at me, had beat me. I had gotten to New York. I had dragged myself out of basic poverty in the Midwest to become a movie star. And I let some man who wrote a movie as a joke destroy me in a way that nobody else had ever been able to do. I don't even know him. I don't know why he did it. I mean, he sabotaged his own career. He never wrote a movie again. And I want to ask him why. I just want to ask him why face to face. And I don't care if he gets up and walks out of the room and won't answer the question. I don't care if I offend him. I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I don't care if I ever work in Hollywood. I don't care if I ever make a movie. I don't care if I'm ever at a convention again. I want to know why in God's name did this man do this to me? he was rewriting the movie the entire time I have the original script and he would point out points he'd say like when I'm dancing in this one scene and it's a favorite of straight guys for some reason I don't know why they love me in this bedroom scene but he pointed this out in the documentary he goes look that was the actor's choice to be so gay in this but when you look in the script which I have it says Jesse bumps his butt against the drawer two times takes a pop gun out pretends to be masturbating and pops it as the girls walk into the room. And on the door, it says, no chicks allowed, right? And it's like, I didn't write that. I was just a good, faithful servant, and I was an actor in the way that I was trained to be, and I respected the writer, and I read what was on the page, and I played the part, even though I was so scared in the middle, I never stopped playing the part. And I want to know why he did it.
3: This has been a conversation with Mark Patton. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
8: Jesse, it's okay. It's all over.
1: (laughs) Did you ever see heaven right in your arms Saying I love you, I do
2: Well,
3: the dream that was walking And the dream that was talking And the heaven in my
8: arms was you
2: a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 can be streamed on Hulu, Peacock, or HBO Max. The documentary on Mark and its making, now called Scream Queen, <laughs> we love that, is available on Amazon Prime or to rent on Google Play, YouTube, or Voodoo. Uh, voodoo? You do? Voodoo? Who do? What? No, I do not. Vo- not that kind of voodoo, although it is Halloween. Next, in a classic audio essay, Angela Brown worries the sin of lesbianism will summon Beelzebub himself. The devil, honey. Lesbians are summoning the devil. Well, I saw that on The CW, didn't
8: I? I'd lie in bed, the smell of snowball blossoms drifting into the room, the sheets dampened with sweat from my nine-year-old body, waiting for him to come, to fly through the window as I had imagined him for the past seven weeks. Not a man, not a human, the devil himself. I said where are you going? Where are you
9: going?
8: I sick where are you going? I have a when spring mulches, will you keep watch for me? I hear them calling,
9: gonna lay down, gonna lay
8: down. My love affair with the devil erupted when Julie Mitchenfelder joined my fourth grade class. She had big ears and sweet brown eyes and long blonde hair. She had Jan's book smarts and Marcia's good looks. Quiet, gentle, funny. And above all, she didn't call me fat ass. I fell instantaneously in love with her. We shared a love for Andy Gibb and Three Musketeers bars. I always had a thing for the new kid, seeing them as a blank slate on which I would write the possibility of friendship. I never had a crush on a girl before, except for Goldie Hawn on Laughin', which was a bit more like a strange vibration right below my stomach. My attraction for Julie meant two things. One, I was going directly to hell. Two, I didn't want it to stop. I hadn't figured out why I was going to hell, and I didn't know why loving another girl was wrong. I didn't even know what the word gay meant. But my father, a Baptist minister, had drummed a bunch of Christian nonsense into me, and I knew a girl could never marry a girl, so I must be going to hell for this. I must be going to hell for this. My anxieties swelled when the next-door neighbor girl, Dee Dee, informed me that since I was unbaptized, the devil could take over my body at any point. What did that mean? Take over my body? I'd lie in bed, terrified and excited about his arrival and what he had in store for me. Cherry-skinned, perspiring, sexy. The devil was everything I wanted and everything I was afraid to want. He made me slip my hand down there. He made me think of Julie. He made my mother turn the vacuum cleaner on at exactly the right moment. Or maybe that was God.
6: After
8: a few weeks, with no calling card from the devil, I grew agitated. He would make everything right. He would let me know that hell was an okay place, that I shouldn't be concerned. One night, my mother and I were wheeling our cart filled with Little Debbie Snack Cakes, Coke, and Clorox through the aisles of Kmart. We passed a 99-cent bin brimming with faux wood shepherd's prayers. My mother fingered the discounted items, extracting the one she would tack up on our kitchen wall. Something about the placement of these items next to a slew of three Musketeers bars set me off. I spent the rest of the summer cussing out God in my head, spouting, Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Followed by, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. This would go on for 30-minute stretches at 8 to 10 times a day. My mental activity was similar to that of an obsessive compulsive counting the thousands of pills in the carpet, or to my mother wildly scrubbing the barbecue grill with a wire brush at 4 a.m. I had to cuss out God and I had to apologize. If I didn't apologize, I was going to hell. The idea that one could buy religion for the same price as 4 nuggety chocolate bars spurred a tornado of blasphemy and anger in me. It also made me want to kiss Julie on the mouth. Sometime later, I was watching the Joker's Wild and he appeared. Not Jack Barry, the stern host, but the devil himself. In the final round, a contestant pulls a lever on a big slot machine. To win the grand prize, usually a Chevy Nova, three jokers must appear. At which point Mr. Berry yelps, Joker, Joker, Joker. A typist from Reseda was up $350 when smirking Satan crashed her party. Dejected, she left the stage. She had only won a Montgomery Ward gift certificate. But I had won my freedom. He had come, the devil, and I was unscathed, untouched. He hadn't taken over my body if he had it sure felt nice every time julie brushed against me in the cafeteria line i still curl up under the covers at night waiting for him to come but this time i want to thank him or just say hi
1: father lucifer you never look so sane you always did prefer the drizzle to the rain tell me that Still in love with that milkmaid How oh, the Lizzie's, how's
8: your Jesus Christ been hanging?
2: These days, Angela Brown is a freelance book editor living in Los Angeles. <laughs> but not for long. Ha <laughs> do i know don't go away we'll be right back with clive barker oh my god Nightbreed changed my life shuna saucy yes and boone was hot
6: as hell after this quick break james whale and his pictures coming up now on the rainbow minute british-born theater and film director james whale expressed an early interest in art he learned to stage plays while a prisoner in world war I. in 1930 after having moved to the states he met handsome assistant story editor david lewis in hollywood They openly shared a home in Pacific Palisades for 20 years. Whale is known for directing horror films such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, which were all blockbuster hits for Universal Pictures. Whale retired in comfort and pursued his first love, painting. A stroke left him depleted and he committed suicide in 1957. The 1998 film Gods and Monsters depicted a fictional account of Whale's final days. The role of James Whale was played by Out actor Ian McKellen. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John Porter.
0: Hi, this is Mark Patton, star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and you're listening to I Am R U Radio Magazine, out loud and out proud since
9: 1974. I am R U.
2: Welcome back. I am Carell, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Of course, you can hear me wherever podcasts are available. K A R E L. Clive Barker, honey, that's how you spell terror. Clive Barker is legendary for his horror books and movies like Hellraiser, Oh, Pinhead, Nightbreed, oh, yes, and Candyman. Openly gay, there can be no doubt, he is the master of horror, and we were lucky
10: enough to catch up with him. Clive, take it away. I am a man, and men are animals who tell stories. This is a gift from God, who spoke our species into being, but left the end of our story untold. That mystery is troubling to us. How could it be otherwise? Without the final part, we think, how are we to make sense of all that went before? which is to say, our lives. So we make stories of our own in fevered and envious imitation of our maker, hoping that we'll tell, by chance, what God left untold, and finishing our tale, come to understand why we were born. Clive
3: Barker, writer, artist, filmmaker, weaver of fantastic worlds. There's very little sex in the work of Stephen King. Right. Your books are very sensual,
10: very sexual. Right. Why? Why? (laughs) Sex is fascinating, isn't it? Sex is such a powerful force in our lives. And horror fiction and science fiction and fantasy fiction very often require, as some portion of the narrative to drive a character into a place where he or she would not normally go. I cannot think of a more powerful motive force for that than desire, an erotic love. And so very often, more often than not, my characters are not frightened into corners, but seduced into corners. And that's an important distinction. I mean, I feel as though the dark side, if you will, exercises in my fiction a great uh, attractiveness, a great seductiveness. I think actually in allowing the erotic element of, of the villain, the dark entity, to manifest itself, I'm simply following a much older tradition, a tradition which goes back to folklore, which goes back to mythologies of various kinds, in which which seem to own up more freely to the idea that what is um, attractive about the dark side is often tied in with its sexual power. You know, Dracula is an incredibly sexual figure. The devil, I mean, going to the ultimate force for darkness, as it were, is a profoundly sexual figure. And through the many Uh, myriad uh, uh, representations of the devil over the years that I've studied and read sexuality and the sexual potency of that character are at the forefront. The whole idea that the monster is sexual and is somebody who will probably do something fabulously forbidden to you is part of his appeal. I think the most homoerotic image I've seen is the poster for Nightbreed with Craig Schaefer. Sure. I mean, that was a movie which was entirely about a subgroup of hidden individuals with their various rules and regulations and rituals into which this young man was brought and initiated, having left his girlfriend behind. Well, gee, what group can this represent? I mean, there was a certain number of people who at the time that that picture came out completely understood what the picture was about they tended to be gay critics straight critics were just completely in the dark it was though the movie had to be decoded and if you decoded it with a gay eye then it was very clear what it was about the villains were cops psychoanalysts and priests the nightbreed themselves were a hint to variegation they were diverse physically diverse physically rather sexy the whole thing was a, as gay a movie, I would argue, as, as Bride of Frankenstein. Speaking of that, is there a gay sensibility? For sure. I, I believe there is. And I've had this argument back and forth over the years. And the smartest person I ever had the argument with was Gore Vidal. And Vidal, of course, passionately believes that there is no such thing as a gay sensibility, even though I think he is a perfect example of it at work. I think that if you are brought up with something so essential to your sexuality, forbidden you, unexpressed, undebated, uncelebrated, and you live your life having to find codes in the movies that surround you, in the general culture and comic books or whatever, which allow you to Find places of identification. Then from a very early age, you start to shape a different sensibility to the straight person, your straight brother, let's say, who sees everywhere around him in the culture images which perfectly reflect his sensibility. I was born in 52, a long time before Stonewall, a long time before the Wolfton Report actually made gay alliances legal in England. Um, So when I was brought up, it was a crime. And you were in jail for a long time, 20 years, perhaps, for, for doing something that came naturally to you. If you define yourself, therefore, as unnatural from a very early age, even if you don't quite understand the vocabulary, if you define yourself as an outsider, because really you have no choice but to define yourself as an outsider. Everybody else has defined you that way. If you learn to be secretive, because it's easier to be secretive than to be open and honest. If you start to look around at the culture with a a different kind of eye, a, a, an eye which is looking constantly for things which signal that there are people out there who are like you. I think if you're looking around for all those things and trying to shape up an opinion of yourself based upon buried clues around you in the culture, all of those things and a thousand others help you shape a different kind of sensibility to your straight sibling. If you're an artist and as an adult, you start to uh, use the feelings that you developed as a child in your art, and every artist does that, every artist churns over these early feelings, then I think what you have is art which is shaped by gay sensibility. And if I take a long time to make the argument, it's because I'm a little tired of the weary throwaway line that there is no such thing as the gay sensibility. I think it just needs to be argued cogently once and left alone, of course there is such a thing as a gay sensibility, of course gay men and women think in some fundamental ways differently from straights. It is not just about what we do in bed, it is about the echoes in the culture of who we are or who we aren't. And it's how we deal with those things. It's, it's the stories we tell to one another, it's the stories we tell to ourselves which make us feel whole and healed. It's all part of that sensibility. But the movement today is to assimilate, to be
3: just as much like your next door neighbor as you can, to have the
10: adopted child and the picket fence and Well My choice is to be with a person who means so much to me. And I just want to I wanna wake up with him, I want to go sleep with him, I wanna be able to talk with him through the day. I don't know if I will go quite as far as the white picket fence, but I do like to have roots. And what we're trying to do together is put down roots, emotional roots. Two trees growing so closely together, their roots entwine. And my husband has a child, and I do my best to be a good stepfather. Uh, But am I ever going to be like my mom and dad? Nah. You have had a number of gay characters in your novels, but I've read you've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in film. Well, yeah, I've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in in novels. I mean, it's happened that way too. So people are more comfortable with monsters than homosexuals. I, I don't think this comes as any great surprise to either of us, but it's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's still an awful lot of fear in this town, far more than the Articles in Out about Hollywood or whatever would tend to suggest. There's the fear that somehow or other if you are thought of as a gay creator or as a gay producer or whatever, that's all you will ever be. You will be defined by that three-letter word. And my experience has been, though there is a little bit of a problem where that's related, it's not large. I mean, when I go to a signing, when I sign at a gay bookstore and the straight audience comes in, they don't care. They get their books signed, they get smiles, they get well-treated. That's the kind of ground-root stuff that we need to do, I think, Uh, as artists. It's not so hard. All I think you need to do is say, I'm a human being, and my work is intended for the largest cross-section of audience that I can make it for. Clearly, if I'm in uh, mid-America, if I'm in Alabama, it becomes more difficult. But I would say that in the last 20 years going on tour, I found it easier and easier and easier to mingle the audiences to, you know, just it's so great. You know, Steve, you go go to a signing and you see a gay couple and a family with their kids and and older folks and, you know, every color, every race just mingled in that line because they have a single passion and the single passion is, yes, me, but also the fantastic, the imagination. The imagination is a great leveler because we all dream. We all have things which our imaginations throw up as means to explain ourselves to ourselves. And that's what this business is about. I think it's about pulling readers in from all sectors and saying, come join the collective dream.
3: This has been an interview with Clive Barker. For This Way Out, I'm Steve
9: Pride. Uh,
2: And because everything old is new again in breaking news, according to The Hollywood Reporter, transsexual gadfly Jamie Clayton is set to play Pinhead in a Hulu remake of Hellraiser produced by Clive Barker. Who can forget Pinhead as one of our favorite Cenobites? I mean, really. Yes, I know what a Cenobite is. Okay, that is it for tonight. I am Carell here in Las Vegas. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Follow along on Facebook at IMRU Radio. Of course, if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. As a reminder, we are a global podcast. We span the globe, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor FM, CastBox, and Pocket Cast. I feel like I should be reading this very fast, like the guy at the end of those commercials. I'm Carell in Las Vegas. Of course, please go to my social media, Really Carell, to follow along and subscribe to me on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Really so you can see all of this talk about scary. Have a happy Halloween. Uh, Just watch C-SPAN. It's it's really scary. And thanks, of course, for listening.
9: Yo, R.I.P. Let's kill it. Size, size, baby. Size, size, baby. All right, chop. Annihilate my victims. Mike is back with the same obsession. old obsession. Stalking, grab a hold of you tightly. Glow like a lantern, scaring you nightly. Will we'll I ever stop. stop? No. Laurie Strode. Turn off the lights, and I'll show. On Halloween, I rock a knife and go mental. Light up the shape and stab a nurse in the temple. Damn. Blood dripping from my eye wounds. I'm killing insane in my mask and a jumpsuit. Deadly. When I slay a whole family, anything less than your death is a hell to me. trickage it or treat it, so happy holiday. Damn. Shoot me six times and I'll still walk away. Glory has a problem, she can't solve it. Check out the stain, got a need to resolve it. a cooped up psycho and when I stroll I only walk slow-mo kill it in my 5.0 with my mask dropped down so my face won't show girlies on the sidelines screaming speed kills guy did you stop? yeah then I sped by crept on pursuing down the next block I busted left then I headed to the headstock that block was dead yo so I continued to do canine slay Grove Avenue flames were high, still fill cemeteries drop dead lovers I drive obituaries. Hellish. hellish cause I'm out ending lives bay with the gauge and the killer with the knife Stab Stab it. They slump when I kill cause I'm full of hate y'all Gunshots rang out then I fell I'm still alive guess you need more shells Falling Out the window real fast Stunned in the yard Slammed on the grass Bodies to bodies The funeral's packed I'm trying to get away For the doctor's back Loomis on the scene You know what I mean? I slash them up I'm hunting all the sex beans. Lori has a problem She can't solve it Check out the stain Gonna need to resolve it Slice, slice, baby I'm a killer and you know it, it. brutally obscene just in case I didn't show show it. It. My town, wearing nothing but a nightgown, I kill my sis while I dress as a clown, cause my skin's like a chemical peel, seasonal crime, the tradition is real, corrupted by thorn, it was hell where my sis slept, wielding a knife, when my mom wept, deadly, deadly. they run from the shake, sliced like a ninja, cut with a scalpel blade, so fast, all the victims say damn, damn, with my knife dripping blood, I'm just killing all I can, creeping October in a one piece suit, traumatized by my knife while I stick these fools, Lori has a problem, she can't solve. It. check out the stain gonna need to resolve it side side baby oh kill you side side baby don't oh, kill you side baby don't oh, kill you side side baby no oh, kill you yo wait till halloween word to your sister side